The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. A Playlist Original. Just watch me. The medium is the message. Proof is a proof. What kind of proof? It's a proof. It has no core identity. Smashed potatoes are no gravy. You know what I'm saying? Speaking uh, moistly on them. Hello and welcome to Just Watch Me. I'm Kate. And I'm Liv. And today on the podcast, we are joined by Selena Caesar Chavant. Selena is a politician and an entrepreneur. She served as the MP for the writing of Whitby from 2015 to 2019. During that time, she served as the parliamentary secretary to the prime minister and the parliamentary secretary to the minister for international development. She is also now an author. Her book, Can You Hear Me Now? is available now. Welcome, Selena. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So as Katie just said, you've been a business owner, you've been a politician, and now you're an author. So what inspired you to uh, write a book? Um, you know what? It, actually, the book that I was inspired to write is not the actual book that was produced. I was inspired to write a book. Uh, basically, when I got into politics, I found like this piece of paper that had all these lessons that I learned through the 10 years that I had my business. And there was 10 lessons, you know, never take the first offer, you know, know your value, things like that. And I wanted to write that book. And then when I went with my agent to Penguin Random House, they said, no, we, do, we don't want just the lessons. We want to know the story behind the lessons. I mean, then you could write about what the lessons are in the story, but we want to know the chronological, like, how do you come here as an immigrant child at two years old from a, a nation that has a population smaller than smaller than the town that you're currently serving in Whitby and become like the parliamentary secretary of a leader of a G7 country. How does that happen? And that's the book that we ended up getting. (laughs) That's the book. So you've titled it, Can You Hear Me Now? Where does this title come from? Who and who are you speaking to? Is it, is Justin Trudeau? Does he hear you now? Who, who is hearing you now? One would hope. One would hope, you know what? It, it's interesting to live in a world post 2020, especially when in 2018, I was talking about microaggressions and racism and discrimination and sexism and things like that, like in parliament and basically being gaslit, like, you know, talking about privilege and things like that and being gaslit. And then post 2020, it's like, you know, he takes a knee at a Black Lives Matter protests which is so performative but I'm not going to diss him on this show with you guys I'm going to be nice um but 
yeah, part of it is I was talking for all this time. You didn't hear me. We had an opportunity to really have a conversation about race and lead that conversation instead of following the United States. We could have been having this very national public conversation. We did not do that. Um, but more importantly, like forget the prime minister for a minute. More importantly, the book is really to say to women, women of color, um, that all of the mistakes that I've laid out in the books, all the guilt, all the shame that I have, I was listening to you. The reason why I advocate so hard is because I have been through some of the pains that you've been through. I know some of those challenges that you have, and it's not necessarily, can you hear me now? It is, it's almost like I'm, I want other women to say, can you hear me now? Can you hear my pain? Can you hear my struggle? And I wrote the book specifically because the politics part was only the last four chapters. The first nine chapters is the bulk of the book and it's written for women and people with intersecting identities. And in the book, you really do get into, you know, some of your highest highs and your lowest lows, including, you know, your struggle with in your family. And, um, you know, I'm curious when you, uh, of course, you've just said that when you went into the writing process, you had a totally different book in mind, but um, did you ever imagine that you would be so vulnerable in the book? And, and, and what was it like to kind of put your, your whole identity out there? So yeah, I did not imagine that, but you know, I had a great editor, uh, Ann Collins at Random House Canada, and she asked me at one point when I through the process, of course you write and then you rewrite, you write and you rewrite. And she said, do you want this book to hurt or to heal? And I said, I want the book to heal. And I knew in those words that I'd have to be honest about my experience, um, but in writing it from a, a place of healing, the book is actually quite cathartic for me because I let go of all of my junk and you know stuff that I was holding on to. Like, you know, I talk about owning my mistakes, but because you own them, it doesn't mean you have to keep them. <laughs> like you could, you could rent out your mistakes, you could give them away, you could throw them out, but like you don't have to hold on to them because you own them. So in writing the book, I was like, oh, I'm gonna just throw them away onto this page. And not even hold on to them anymore. So it relieves sort of a burden of these things that we hold on to that we really like why everybody's made mistakes. Speaking of holding on to stuff, uh, I th it was, thought it was really interesting, this part of the book. Um, for those who don't know, your family came to Canada from Grenada, um, but you didn't all come together. You know, your, mm -hmm. your parents came first to Canada and you stayed with your grandparents for the first years of your life before you eventually uh, met your parents in Canada. You talk a little bit about feeling left behind. Um, and can you expand on that? Like, did that and how that maybe affected you? Yeah. So, you know, it, it was interesting when I sat as an independent in parliament, like years and years later, like 45 years later, almost, um, I, I instantly was drawn back to that moment. And I was like, wait a minute, I didn't need politics to tell me that I'm independent. I've been independent all my life. Like this is not, it was a, a moment of sort of that reconcil reconciliation of that little girl that I lost. That was the most unapologetic, unafraid version of myself. You know, the little three-year-old Selena. And it, I, I was, I remember just sitting there in independence corner. That's what we called it <laughs> um, in the house of commons that first day on March 21st, 2019, and feeling so alone and so scared and, and like so fragile. 
and then thinking, but wait a minute, like I'm 40 something years old. The two-year-old version of me did this. Like we were alone at one point. Why are we scared? Why are we, you know, we're standing on the right side of history here. So I think it really shaped who I was, good or bad, right or wrong. That's, that's not the point. I think it really shaped how I navigated the world, knowing that I'm always going to have to figure out a way to land on my two feet. Even when I fall, I have to figure out how to get back up. And, you know, one of my favorite parts of the book actually was the way you described um, your children and um, specifically Johnny. similarly seems to be unwilling to conform to society's notions of what he should be. You know, he was interested in taking ballet and making a statement by wearing pink shoelaces. Um, And so I'm wondering if, you know, you think that he got that, um, shall we call it an independent spirit from you? I think all three of my children did. So, you know, my girls, they travel, they've traveled the world by themselves since they were 13. Like they, they don't, you know, they just, at the beginning of the pandemic, my, my 16 year old was in Australia with her, with her friend. Um, and my 21 year old now 22 was, um, in England and, you know, Johnny just does what he wants. And I, I just feel like they're the 2.0 version of me. Right. So they're the independent Selena who didn't lose her way. So they maintain that three-year-old version of Selena, whereas I sort of repackaged it, hid it away, sort of tried to conform a little bit to what society expected of me, you know, be seen and not heard, little girl, be seen and not heard in particular, little Black girl. And I think that they are just like, no, we're not going to do that, mom. We're, we're going to go out and live out loud. That's Marcy Ian's book title, Live Out Loud. And I'm... I'm just really excited to see what they do in in this world because they're so brave and they're so courageous. They are my heroes, my children. That's very sweet. Um, one of my favorite things about you and about this book is how much you swear and how much you love to swear. <laughs> I'm wondering, I have my own theories about women who who love to swear because I'm a woman who loves to swear. But what do you think that says, especially about about women who swear a lot? Oh, I, I just think it's it's not conforming. You know, women are supposed to be these polite, docile creatures who are, you know, stand next to their man or stand next to men and, you know, sort of, you know, acquiesce to their requests, right? And the moment that of crystallizing of that for me was that phone call with the prime minister, where it was like, I sat on that phone listening to him, like the misogyny of... I wanted to do something, but yet had to wait until he said it was the proper time to do it. And in that moment, like the lessons in misogyny, the lessons in how you're supposed to behave as a woman, like I think that he really expected me to say, oh, okay, um, sure. I'll put my tail between my legs and I will, I will just humbly, yes, oh, great one, humbly do what you say. And I was just like, fuck, no, (laughs) like the words. I remember thinking in that moment, I want to say every bad word there is in the world. And I will never call him by his name. Like everything that people did to me that belittled me, 
I wanted to do in that one phone call. So I remember consciously thinking, I'm not going to call him prime minister. I'm not going to say Justin. I'm going to call him every other thing that I could think of because I was so angry. And we, we tend to, as women, pack in all of this frustration that we have and remain these polite people. And sorry, we're not doing that anymore. Let, let, the, the, we don't burn witches at the stake anymore. We burn them from the inside. We, 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 we douse them and make them so quiet. Now it's time to let that fury out. So we've, um, we've gone right to the kind of end climax of your um, political <laughs> journey. But if you would take a step back with us and yes. talk about, you know, how you got involved in the first place. And, and, you know, you were someone who said um, you never thought you would ever go into politics, but um, so what was the, what was the reason? What got you interested and in what got you involved? Yeah. So a couple of things, the universe. So one thing I hope your listeners really pay attention to is when the universe unfolds and you allow it to unfold around you, great, great, great things happen. And if you try to like hold it from unfolding, it's just going to like screw up good things. Right. So just just let it open up. So I was working as a co I was the co-chair of Canada's first national epidemiology study on neurological conditions. We were looking at scope, impact, health services, and risk factors for uh, 14 priority conditions, including Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, epilepsy, et cetera, across the age continuum. What we were finding was that people had to pack up their houses, leave a province and move to another province because their drugs for their condition wasn't covered under the provincial formulary. Or people had to get divorced because their aid, their, their financial bracket was too high for their partner to get services that they needed for their condition. So that was happening. And then I was doing my M executive MBA. And at the time, the first time I've ever been in a political science class, the professor was talking about the fact that your political capital could help you with a business problem. And I was like, oh, I have a business problem. These people have to move. And if I get political capital, I could help these people so they don't have to move by policy. And I was like, that is awesome. And that was it. <laughs> and that was in December of 2013. And honestly, I spent the whole Christmas like Googling how to be a member of a political party. I became a member of the Liberal Party because that's I always voted Liberal in February of 2014. And then on March 8th, so like this is less than three months, March 8th, International Women's Day 2014, I get this email because of course I'm a member now, you get all these emails that says, invite her to run. Do you know a woman who'd be interested in running in the next federal election? And I was just like, do I know her? Bitch, I am I her. Am her. <laughs> I told I'm that girl. Let's go. And that that was like honestly, that was it. Just just jump into the unfolding of the universe. Can you talk a little about this like from the initial time you ran to when you actually end up becoming elected mm -hmm. um, and sitting in the house? Can you kind of walk us through that timeline? Yeah. So, okay, so you jump in with both feet into the universe. Don't let it unfold first. <laughs> don't let, don't jump in the universe midair. That's what I did. So it's like, you know, March 8th, I'm like, I reply back. I'm like, yeah, totally. I'll do it. Now, Whitby is 70% white, never has elected a person of, a person of color, never in any, in any range. 
um, the person who is the sitting member of parliament is Jim Flaherty, who is the minister of finance <laughs> for the government of Canada. This writing had been conservative for like decades. And I'm like, sure, I don't care. I'll do it. You know, at least I could get some political capital. I could make headway on solving this business problem. No problem. By the end of March or mid-March, uh, Flaherty steps down. And then at the beginning of April, he passes away. And I'm like, oh, shoot. Like, you, it, it, like instantly start doing math in your head. And you're like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm supposed to be running in a general election in October of 2015. So that gives me two years to figure out what, what the heck I've got myself into. Now I'm in a by-election in six months. So I really had to like figure this out quite quickly. And for that by-election, which happened in November of 2014, I was trying to figure it out as a politician, like trying to consume copious amounts of Canadian politics and politics stuff. Just in case somebody asked me a question like, so what do you think about Bob Ray's policy on him? <laughs> no idea. I have no idea what you're talking about. So I tried to like consume all this stuff and it was just so it didn't, it, it didn't work. Anyhow, lost the by-election, ended up falling into a massive depression for January and February of 2015. By the time I got back up, um, and figured myself out. I just thought, you can't run this next election as a polit as a politician. You're not one. You have to run it as a business person because that you are. You've done this for ten years. You have two MBAs. Be the businesswoman that you are and run this election like a project that you want to have a successful outcome with. And I ran the next election as a business person, did everything that I needed to do as with a very sound business mind. And the results were different. We won that election. That's the short version. <laughs> so uh, we have to tell you both, uh, both Katie and I, we, well, how we met, we both went to law school in Ottawa. So we know all about the Ottawa winters. And you note so many times in your book how much you hate the cold. So I, I had to know when you first got to Ottawa, was that your first big disappointment about being in Ottawa? <laughs> was the cold winters? <laughs> oh my God. So I had, a, so people were very quick to tell me Ottawa is one of the coldest places in the planet. It might be like the second coldest capital in the world. Um, it's going to be cold. It's cold, cold, cold. Like people just kept saying cold, cold, cold. So I met a person in Whitby, Jennifer, who has a company called Coolway Sports. And she makes coats for people in wheelchairs or with disabilities that are able to be adjusted. So I said, I will, I'm not going to buy a brand name coat, which most people buy that is now American owned. I will buy local and I will have you, I'll commission you to make me a, my Ottawa coat. So she made it that goes all the way down. It was like, it, it was stuffed with, I don't even know what, it, it was just stuffed with good stuff. Nothing that was trapped harshly. Um, and though that coat allowed me to survive the winters, but those wind tunnels in the streets of, oh my gosh, I, and I walked everywhere. So even if I had to go to Gatineau, I would walk. 
across the bridge. I know my husband <laughs> was like, why? <laughs> Look at her face. You are crazy. Across the but, bridge too. <laughs> I know. Right. Like insane. And the, but the thing is, it's like getting a cab to go like those little places or to get an Uber in that traffic and in those times that I, it just didn't make any sense. I get there faster if I just walked. So I was really prepared and dressed for the occasions um, that I had to walk, but I'm just glad I'm not in Ottawa right now because you are so tough. You are so tough. Good for you. Honestly. That builds you. Yeah. <laughs> I still hate the winter though. <laughs> Um, shortly after you were elected to the house, uh, you were of course appointed as parliamentary secretary to the prime minister. Um, and you talk about how you get in that role and you realize, um, you don't really have a defined role and you don't really have clear duties. Uh, Can you talk about coming to that realization and how you felt in that moment? Yeah. So if I rewind from that moment, you know, my first meeting with the prime minister was to say, look, um, I don't care if it's 2015 or because it's 2015. I don't want to be your parliamentary secretary to fit any gender racial gaps that you have in your cabinet. I want to be here for a, a specific job. Oh, of course, of course, you totally have a job. So I thought we were on the same page and this is December of 2015. And I get in there and I'm like, okay, there's no real handbook. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. He's jutting off all over the place internationally. So I develop this framework that says clear tasks that I need to do, milestones, how we measure success, you know, it's, it's accountability, right? Because I feel like, you know, as a business person, if I were to launch a major initiative and the CEO of the company didn't know what I was doing, that would kind of be weird, right? So I, launched it thinking we need to be in sync. So we're not, we don't have redundancies and I could fill gaps in his schedule. And I'm still waiting for a response about my framework. (laughs) Nobody ever said whether or not to go along with it. And I mean, that's not to say that I didn't do anything. I ended up just doing some things on my own, but the realization that there wasn't, it's, it's not the realization that there wasn't any description. It was the realization that even when I created a framework that made sense, that it was dismissed. That realization hit hard because it went back to the fact that, well, I just told you I didn't want to be tokenized. And now I'm giving you the work that I'm going to do. All you have to do is go, I mean, it was like five pages, not long. You just have to look at it and say, yeah, that sounds good this one you should prioritize or that one you should prioritize and then let me go on with it. But you didn't even do that. Like you didn't, it was embarrassingly hurtful that it was just dismissed. And yeah, (laughs) one of the reasons why I hated that job. And of course you were, you were very vocal about your, your critique of Justin Trudeau from, from the start. Still Um, still are. <laughs> um, and, and one of the first instances uh, that you spoke out publicly was about his comments about the cabinet representing Canada. Yes. And so I, I'm curious, you know, how that ultimately shaped your relationship with, with him and the Liberal Party. Yeah, so I, I admittedly was very naive, thinking that 
you know, as, as someone who's part of a government that would describe themselves as bold, transformative, sunny ways, um, you know, sunshine is our biggest disinfectant, make sure everything is transparent, um, diversity is our strength, add women, change politics. I was like, well, you want the truth. So I'm going to give it to you. And unfortunately, you know, it was towards the end <laughs> where I'm talking to people about these things and they're like, you realize like that was definitely your first, like you were, you were on the way down from there. It, would just, it just would not have worked. Um, and, you know, this is not necessarily about Justin Trudeau as a person. As a person, sure, sure let's have some beers, whatever. Justin Trudeau as a leader of a G7 country is a different thing, right? So there has to be some capability to hear things, to be critiqued on things. And, and yes, maybe one of my, the critiques was that you said it publicly. I didn't read the manual on how to be a politician, okay? I own that. But, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that that said it publicly and you don't even say, well, look, you, you just exclude me from every, everything else after that. Like that's not leadership. And that's not actually saying or doing or, or being substantive in, in your definition of your party, open, transparent, sunny ways, add women, change politics, that you're being performative. And that really, I had a challenge with. So if, if people had a challenge with me, I, I really, it didn't really bother me as much because I was, I was sold a brand. I was sold a brand that had all of these characteristics and we had a majority government. So not only did we have all these characteristics, all the promises that we were supposed to keep that we didn't, got, it all just got really frustrating really fast. And at some point, I think that some relationships were tarnished, but I think most of us knew that we were, it was a facade of, it was a lot of smoke and mirrors. Your mentorship seemed to be an important part of your time in politics. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about um, your initiatives and, and why mentorship is so important. Oh, um, I mean, people say representation matters. Like, you know, looking at us through some kind of glass window is all that matters, right? Like representation can matter by just seeing someone, but if you're able to interact with that person, it is everything. If you're able to sit in that seat, if you're able to have a day in the life, if you're able to see that person interact. And it's one of the reasons why I was so transparent about my time in, in Ottawa. I didn't want people to be surprised when they step through those doors. So it's one thing to have representation that matters if it's a facade or you just have to look at them through the glass. It's another thing to say, I could actually experience what it's like while you're there through you being there. And, um, you know, I had people that I was able to mentor personally, who knew me personally, but I thought it was, there was a bigger play there. There was a play around mentoring people completely like Canadians. And one of the things that I wanted to do while in parliament in particular was to engage the Selena that before 2014. So I kept thinking, how would Selena pre 2014 get interested in politics 
if Selena post 2015 was in politics? What would I have to do to get her interested? And I'd have to be honest. I'd have to talk about things that were of interest to her. I mean, I could vote on legislation and regulations like yay, nay, sit, stand. I could do that. But what else did I need to do to engage that Selena to say, as someone who feels marginalized by the political process, what do I need to do? So I did little makeup videos and I did those like things, but I also was talking about issues that people were often not talking about. And that was bringing that to the forefront with my expectation of myself. I think one of those issues was uh, hair shaming and discrimination and, and kind of in line with mentorship. Um, you tell a story about a friend of yours who was coming to visit you um, and in trying to get through security had her hair searched without her consent, um, which led to a, a now famous speech in the House of Commons and that was um, written up in Oprah's magazine. Yes. Can you talk about a little bit about that story? Yeah, so it was more than just that uh, that woman getting getting searched. It was the fact that in Toronto, a young girl was removed from her class um, around the same time. Um, some sisters in the U.S. were banned from their graduation because they had braids. Um, a, ge- a gentleman in the U.S. as well had dreads, and his hair was shaved before a wrestling match. Like all of these things were happening, and I'm like, it's just hair. Right. And our hair as black individuals has always been politicized, like the 1700s in the U.S., the Tiong laws. We couldn't show our hair. It was banned. So we had to wear head wraps and we do them in fancy colors. That's why you you see it a a lot now with the the head scarves. Um, So we weren't allowed to do that. But also our hair was utilized in the Underground Railroad. We would braid, you know, the roots in our hair so that people behind us could see where they needed to go. So our hair is a very important part of our identity, but it is a very also part important part of black liberation. And so to know that we were now, and not just now, but we've had a history of being discriminated against based on our hair. And of course, very recently California and a couple of other states banned discrimination against hair. Think about that. Um, or when you Google unprofessional versus professional hair, you see black hairstyles versus white hairstyles. I just thought enough is enough. And in that moment, I was scared because I didn't know it was going to go viral. I just know, I just knew at that time that I needed to speak about something that was different because usually in that, those uh, one minute speeches that are done before question period, you talk about your riding or you talk about something that's happening in your town. And I was talking about something that people were like, what are you talking about? You know, this has nothing to do with Whitby. This has nothing to do with, you know, your responsibilities as a parliamentary secretary. What is going on with you? And I was so afraid of doing that speech, but I knew it was necessary because again, I needed to engage the Selena who would have never been interested in politics. I think it's such a good point because I think, you know, we see time and time again when women are involved involved with politics and when people of color are involved with politics that they bring up issues that are unique to to mm-hmm. them that other people just don't think about. 
aren't on the consciousness as much. And, you know, when you have women in power, we talk about childcare a lot more. Um, And so I think it's, you raised such a good point um, or, and you did by, by even saying it, I think it's so important that we, we hear those points those voices and mm-hmm. um, getting uh, with what you said as well is that, you know, diversity is important, but inclusion is the next step that we need to be taking oh, um, sure. to engage. So I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, your experience with um, your, your lack of inclusion within the liberal party. Yeah. So, so it goes back to tokenism when, and a lot of organizations, not just the liberal party or not just government are stuck on the D part of D, uh, D or diversity, equity, inclusion. They're start on the, they're stuck on the diversity part where they want to make sure that their overall brand representation looks diverse. So you have certain check boxes that you have to, you know, racialize indigenous person with disability, different homosexuality, gender, blah, blah, blah religious, socioeconomic status, you check, 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 check. And then you don't actually engage that individual for what they represent beyond their phenotypical appearance. So beyond the fact that I identify as a cisgendered woman and that I'm black, you don't engage in anything else, which is which was clearly demonstrated by the fact that my framework was never looked at, right? So you've done enough just by being black and a woman, please do not do anything more. That's all we wanted you for. What what is this framework? Why are you bringing us that? We don't want you to be included. We just wanted the token part, right? So you have that part and you fail to engage, you fail. So inclusion is the active intentional connection and engagement with your diversity. So if your diversity is just there, just to be there, that's that's tokenism. If you want to be inclusive, you would engage. It'll be active. It'll t- intentional because that active in- intentional engagement removes the barriers that prevent equity. So for example, part of my framework was saying, let me help you be a liaison between different cultural groups so that we don't just show up as liberals, as government at you know the celebration and we don't show up any other time. We want to see these cultural representation in our policy. And if you have someone that's able to engage, then we could do that in in a correct way. None of those things were listened to. And therefore the role was purely based on diversity and very, very much tokenistic. To put even a finer point on it, you brought up tokenism. Um, Can you talk about maybe specifically those three trips that you were asked to take with the liberal party. (laughs) Oh God. You know, it's when you look back on these things that you're like, man, that was embarrassing. So, you know, as I said earlier, the prime minister, especially in 2015, 2016 was like in, in December, 2015, he did COP21, right? Like he was doing these international travel People were actually criticizing him as playing into more international media than his national media, right? And as his parliamentary secretary, for those who don't know, parliamentary secretaries are essentially like a tag team. So, you know, you tag the parliamentary secretary in when you want them to do um, anything. So if you're on the West, your parliamentary secretary is on the East. If you're on the North, they're on the South. So you're covering more ground, right? And you're able to have your policy out more. You're able to be engaged more. And so 
with all the international travel that he did, um, I'm not saying that I, I wanted to do more international travel. I didn't do national travel either. Um, but the three events that I was asked to go on on behalf of the prime minister were very black focused events. So the first, and, and, and I wanna be very clear about the tokenistic nature of this. The first was to see, uh, to, to, to go for the state dinner um, in which I wasn't invited to the state dinner. I was just invited to meet the, pre the president on the South Lawn. The, the only elected official that was actually in that group uh, was myself. Everybody else was at the front as part of the official delegation. I had no we other We should say, meet. sorry, this is President Obama. Obama, yes. Oh God, yes. yes. <laughs> Obama, please, Jesus. Um, yes, so this is 2016. So um, I had no other meetings. I was not asked to engage in any other forums except for that meeting on the South, South Lawn. And it wasn't even a meeting. It was like he passed by and he was like, hi, my name, I'm Selena. Keep on walking kind of thing. So in that, uh, that case, I was like, hmm, well, maybe because I'm new, it's okay. Then the second one was the opening of the National African American Museum in Washington. And uh, the prime minister couldn't make it. He asked me if I wanted to go. And again, I sat in the seat, no other meetings, no other purpose for the trip, but to sit there and be black and be female, same as the meeting with the, the president. The third was a meeting uh, to go to the inauguration of the president of Ghana, Nana Kufado. And again, uh, to sit in the seat, I had a couple more meetings in that one. I had a couple meetings. So it was part of a part of a, the head of delegation for that one. So there were a couple of more meetings um, throughout the, the country. Um, but they were all, of course, it's in Ghana. They're all going to be very black focused <laughs> meetings. And when I look back, I thought, man, you got played. <laughs> like your first meeting said, don't do this. And then you embarrassingly like shamed me and did it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just realizing that right now. That is so shameful. Yeah. <laughs> and, and of course, I mean, Justin Trudeau's true kind of colors came out shortly after you left the liberal caucus which we'll get into um but with his blackface scandal so i'm i'm wondering you know given your experience with him were you surprised oh my god i wish people could see my face no i was not surprised I actually i actually should have seen it coming and the challenge with blackface is that even when i knew it was like even when i saw it happening I didn't want, I was less thinking about him and more thinking about the people that it would impact, like young people, um, you know, black, young black people who have so many challenges already, right? And now they're seeing the leader of a G7 country with like blackface as an adult. Let's be very clear about that. Um, and so I sent a message to the prime minister's office, still trying to help it. I know, come on, Selena, give your head a shake. But I sent a message saying, you know, you can't just apologize for this. You must, number one, do it like what we do with children. Say you're sorry, what did you learn? And what are you gonna do differently to fix it? So I sent him a letter that said, you have to apologize, but you also have to say what you learned. 
you're in Manitoba at the Museum of Human Rights. Minstrel shows in the prairies in Canada were rampant. Talk about this. This isn't an educational moment for all of us because we Black people know this is a moment where you as the leader could talk about something that has been erased from the consciousness of Canadians. Tell them about minstrel shows. Tell them how dehumanizing it was. He didn't do that. Then tell them what you're gonna do to fix it. Hold yourself accountable for what you have done. He didn't do that either. And so people think that I have beef with Justin Trudeau. I don't have beef with Justin Trudeau. I just don't think he's a leader because a leader would step into that knowing what he did, say, apologize, tell people what he learned, use this as a proper leadership moment and hold himself accountable. And he did none of those things in a, in a way that was, that was any more than performative. For sure. And I know we're talking about him way too much, um, yeah. but so but much I, oxygen to that guy. I know he's getting a lot of attention. Um, but, but I he have- is the leader of a G7 country who quite frankly, doesn't lead very well. So I don't mind. (laughs) Well, fair enough. Um, But I want to talk to you about the breaking point that led to you uh, leaving the Liberal caucus. Can you talk us through those moments and how you got to that point? So sitting as an independent or saying that I wasn't going to run again, because those are two very different moments. I'm asking when you, when you left the Liberal caucus to decide to sit as as an independent. Okay. Yeah. That's an even better story actually, because most of what I talked about so far was why I decided I wasn't going to run again, but leaving as a, and sitting as an independent, especially when I sat as an independent in March of of 2019 and what we only had like a few months left, like it wasn't absolutely necessary. Why did I have to do that? Um, and I was very clear that the decision not to run again had nothing to do with SNC-Lavalin. Nothing. It had to do with the tokenism, the exclusion, the gaslighting, those kinds of things. My decision to sit as an independent, though, had everything to do with SNC. And l- not really SNC, but the way that Jody Wilson-Raybould was treated. Um, we had just come out of a Me Too movement where the whole world was saying, believe her, believe women when they say that they're bullied, believe women when they say that they're harassed, believe them when they say that they're assaulted. Every single one of my colleagues were like, hashtag, believe her, hashtag, believe her, hashtag, blah, blah, blah. And I found it so interesting that they could believe her when it was convenient Mm -hmm. and leave her when it wasn't. Yeah, just not her, right? (laughs) Yeah, and... At the, the day that I made that decision was a Wednesday caucus day. And I went to Ontario caucus. And after leaving that meeting, I'll never forget it. Like the meeting basically was without giving a very too much caucus confidentiality was basically, you know what? Put your party above your principles and get on, get on board. And I was like, y'all really don't know who I am. Like deuces. Bye. Like, I, I was like, are you all nuts? Like, have you seen nothing about me? I'm not like, I don't just bobble head and follow along. Like, I'm the only black female chocolate chip in the whole damn cookie. And you want me to like blend in? No, I'm good. And at that moment, I was like, I can't stay here. And I want to send a message that what you're doing is wrong. You cannot be this feminist 
diversity is our strength, government, and do what you've done to someone. And the thing is, is that even in talking with Jody after, like, even if there wasn't an apology given, even if there was just an acknowledgement, I acknowledge what you're saying. I acknowledge how you feel. I just acknowledge you. They were dismissing her. They were gaslighting her. They were like, it was so wrong that sitting as an independent, I would rather sit as alone on the right side of history than sit with that crowd on the wrong side. Do you think he's a feminist after all this? I think he thinks he's a feminist. (laughs) Feminism does not operate that way. Feminism is not selective. Feminism is not misogynistic. Feminism is not misogynoir. Feminism does not decide to put your political expediency above everybody else. So he may think he is, and it's not for me to tell him whether he is or he isn't, but his actions have demonstrated otherwise. Can you talk? There's, of course, I know you've been asked about it a million times, but I have to ask you about, there's a very specific screaming match with the prime minister. Can you, can you tell us about that? Yeah. Uh, when I, so a, a few weeks before I sat as an independent uh, on March, just, just at the end of February, a courtesy call just to say, I'm not running again. Courtesy call, right? Don't want to put out a statement and the prime minister, the whip doesn't know that I'm doing it. So I put out at this, this phone call and I get an immediate message. Prime minister wants to talk to you at 9.30 tonight. I'm like, 9.30, it's like past my bedtime. <laughs> but I'm like, you know what? I mean, I'm a nice person on most days. So I actually naively thought like the amount of naivety that went into Selena's brain during these four years is like beyond. So I actually thought that he was going to say, oh my God, Selena, I, I'm just so disappointed that you're not running. Like you've been such an incredible part of our team. Can you stay and be that diversity is our strength feminist person that we lack? <laughs> no. Um, what I was told was, no, you can't leave today. You have to postpone your announcement because Jody Wilson-Raybould resigned from cabinet today and I can't have two powerful women of color leave my government at the same time or leave me at the same time. Um, Did he say it in those words? Yeah, I cannot have two powerful women of color leave me at the same time. And I only put it out there because that call came through the prime minister's switchboard. So I know there has to be a recording of that phone call somewhere. So I I don't give a rat's behind um but yeah that that was the first part then then it was um how I needed to appreciate him for all that he's done for me during the by-election and um he came out and he supported me then it was um and and this is me like I'm remember I came into this call very naive thinking that he was gonna be like you gotta stay babe and I'm getting now like vexed like really vexed because I have four years of cussing off for him that have been stored up. And then he talks about, oh, everybody keeps talking about my privilege. Dude, I just told you I wasn't going to run again. I don't know where you're directing your energy to, but it's not to me. Um, Then he said, he said a few other things. By the time he was done, honestly, and I said this earlier, I had a litany of every bad word 
available to mankind in sentence form ready for him. I was so done, like in sentence form. I was so done with that. The, the audacity, the audacity, first of all, to speak to me that way, right? Like, oh my God, I can't believe you wouldn't just bow down at my feet. Um, yeah. So I cussed him good. I cussed him like a black girl cuss. <laughs> Not just the polite one, like the real dirty ones. It's funny because the next question on my page is, do you miss politics? <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, I, I, I do miss it. I do. I left a job that I loved. I love being member of parliament. I love being parliamentary secretary for international development. I left both on principle. Um, And I loved, I love that job and I miss it. I really do, but I cannot. And and the way the Paul, that the politics beast is, is that you have to fall in line behind your leader. Well, if I think dude can't lead, where am I going? So I'll go back, just not as long as Justin Trudeau is the leader of the Liberal Party. So you have found another way to be a little bit involved in politics. I saw that you were going to be a panelist on a new Canada Land podcast called yes. Backbench. So yes. can you tell us about that? So the Backbench, that allows me to still get my teeth into some juicy bits of politics in a fun, provocative way. Um, and the backbenchers that I am on the podcast with that just love to, you know, to have a little bit of a serious discussion about politics, but also then to just really have fun with it. And I think too, what I really like about the back, the backbench is that it engages the pre 2015 Selena into politics, like in a way that is not, well, let's talk about budget 20. 21 and you know what is its ramifications for the economic future of no like let's just talk about it like we're real people right so um that I wish the listeners could see your mannerisms that you were doing (laughs) because it was really funny (laughs) that's why podcasts have to be videos as well as like just the listening experience because the facial expressions I can't play play poker because my face is always like what I don't have aces. What? <laughs> um, that's awesome. I can't wait to listen. Um, and now that you're, this is like the big question, of course. Now that you're on the other side, um, thoroughly exhausted from governance, governments who say they want a different kind of politics. Um, what are the what are the key things that you, the key kinds of change that you're looking for? Um, mm. Maybe mm-hmm. next cycle. Yeah, you know what? And this may sound really, really like naive again. Um, but I'm actually embarking on doing my, my PhD at looking at the intersection of equity and empathy. And I spent a lot of time after leaving parliament, um, thinking what was wrong with, with the system and people say, well, is the system broken, Selena? Huh? Is it broken? And I'll be like, I don't think it's broken like you know we could probably change how we vote but that's not broken but there's something wrong and I couldn't quite figure out what it was and then I realized the humanity is missing like just the way that how do we expect to enact laws to affect 37 million people if you can't even care about the person that's standing right beside you 
How does that work? How do we expect to save our planet from climate change if we don't like the people right beside you? You expect to save the grass and you don't like the lady standing beside you? Like really just think about that. You want people to fix the grass or the trees, but they can't be nice to someone. So when I think about what's missing, I, I'm actually going to study this. Like it, it is an obsession for me to understand how empathy works, how you get it, how you could tap into it. Do you lose it? Do you, does, you know, when the prime minister said um, after blackface that he operated from the blind spot that privilege afforded him. It's like one of the most profound lines I've ever heard anyone say, like you operate from a blind spot that privilege gives you. What about the rest of us? What do we do? You are the leader of a G7 country. How do other leaders operate in that blind spot? And what does it cost our economy, our communities, our organizations? What does it cost when you operate from that space? And that's what I wanna understand. That's a, that's a really profound uh, <laughs> answer. Um, so in terms of what what's next for you, obviously you're on the podcast, you're thinking about doing your PhD. What's what's next? You wrote a book. What I else have you got books. in store? <laughs> yeah, I wrote two books. So I have obviously, Can You Hear Me Now? Which is this one. Amazing. And then I wrote, and then I wrote Maximizing You, which is the journal that goes with uh, fantastic. So I wrote, uh, so I actually did write the book of the lessons. So all the lessons are in here and it has like the activities and like notes and reading and homework and the whole nine yards of things that you have to do or that you can do to overcome fear and, you know, be more resilient and things like that. So I wrote that and I'm now at Queens as their senior advisor for EDI. Um, and I'm just taking it day by day. You know, I, I kind of really left that whole um, hustle, Selena. She's somewhere, I don't know where she is. She's busy doing something. This version of Selena is stopping to smell the roses. So I actually put a plant in my office because I remind myself that I have to smell the roses. And, you know, I take time out for myself. So I do still do my nails. I like, loved that. I loved that. I like video. that it's handy. <laughs> like, yeah, like, and two bottles just in case, right? And they're the exact same color, right? Like, don't get it all complicated. Just keep it really freaking simple. Um, but yeah, so I put all these little things around me to remind me of what's important and what I should be doing and not obsessing over crap. Sounds good. <laughs> that is fantastic. I think I'm having fun. That's it. That is fantastic to hear. <laughs> well, you deserve a little fun after all the heyday. Yeah. Um, Selena, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We were so excited to have you. Um, and thanks. See you next week. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place 
by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.